and welcome to The Art Dealer Show, a podcast about those of us who sell art and for those of us who sell art and anyone else who gives a damn. My name is Danny Stern, and welcome to episode number one, and I hope you it's an episode zero zero. It's really the opportunity I took to um, explain a little bit about what this show is going to address and where we hope it's going to go. It's 10 minutes of me babbling, but I think for some of us, it's a worthwhile 10 minutes of me babbling. But on to episode number one. On the show today, Jeff Jaffe. I've known Jeff like a lot of the people I'm going to be interviewing for a very long time. As a matter of fact, I met Jeff in voice before I ever met Jeff in person. This goes back about 20 years ago. We used to work for the same company. We worked for Martin Lawrence Galleries. Now, this is a Martin Lawrence Galleries of a different generation than the one that you're familiar with right now. This is at a time where we had literally dozens of locations, not just a handful of them, all throughout the country. And Jeff was a director in one of the New York locations, uh, whereas I was a director in our San Francisco locations, actually a a few uh, Bay Area locations at the time. And every couple weeks or so, we would get on the phone to have a uh, company-wide conference call with our boss, and uh, he would kind of give us a state of the union, if you would. But there would be this moment, this time, before our boss would get on the phone, and uh, we could all hear each other as we waited. And I got to say, perhaps some of the funniest shit I've ever heard, it would be Jeff and and, and his partner art uh, gallery director out there in New York just riffing away, and the two of them would just crack me up out of this group of 30-plus people on a conference call. I fell in love with those guys years before I ever got to meet them. But I did. I eventually got to meet them, and it was in the version of my career that I now have, which is as a publisher and agent, and it was in 2002 just a little bit after 9-11, and that's, that's significant because uh, Jeff owns a gallery called Pop International Gallery. It's uh, right on West Broadway, and once upon a time, you could look down the street from his gallery and uh, see the Twin Towers. And the time that I was out there, it was just right after City was getting out of shock. But I met him after we had just signed on a new artist to our operation, one that I had worked with many times in the past, but now for the first time as an artist agent, uh, and that was Ronnie Wood of the Rolling Stones. And we were putting together uh, with the folks at his gallery uh, what would be our very first art opening for Ronnie Wood under our management. And that was a beginnings of setting up the plans for a show that I, I will probably never forget. I was about to say, we'll, we'll not soon forget, but I will, I will never forget this show. This show, if you can picture it, was a show that by the time it got rolling and required us to set up a press pit in front of the gallery, that is something that I have yet to see since and uh, don't think I ever will in the future. A, a press pit containing Fox News, CNN, the New York Times, Everybody in New York City, you'd want to show up actually willing to sit in a pit outside the front of a gallery. And down the street, a line literally wrapping itself around the block on West Broadway, heading itself down to Spring Street, a line of people waiting to get in to be a part of this show. The show was so intense that we had to let people in like it was the hottest nightclub in town. At some point, one of the representatives with the Rolling Stones insisted that the press had to go. It even involved Fox News crew, their their camera crew, hiding in the basement of the gallery to avoid being thrown out when all the rest of the press was being kicked out the door because it was getting too overwhelming as a scene. And then later, for me, having to have one of the members of... Uh, the handler's crew, yell at me and say, who the fuck is in the basement and get rid of them? And I would have to go down there and literally try to drag out Fox News, which is something I'm actually kind of proud of. The scene got so intense, at one point we decided we had to clear out the gallery so that we can bring new people in, because no one's leaving. 
It was a thing that we would later on learn when you bring a rock star of this level into a room and you have a bunch of their most crazed fans show up, no one is going to leave until that person leaves, that that star leaves. At one point, one of the owners of the gallery, not Jeff, but his partner Rick, stood up on a chair front of the light switch and flick the switch on and off. Actually, I don't think there was a chair, but he flicked the switch on and off. I don't think I've seen anybody flick a switch on and off to get an attention from a room full of screaming people since I was in second grade and a school teacher used to do that and screamed at the top of his lungs that everybody had to leave. We actually had to kick out everybody just so we can bring in a new batch of fans. That was the first bit of business I ever did with Jeff Jaffe that was now 13, 14 years ago. And since then, we have done a lot together. We've even put on a private show for an uh, (laughs) ex-president, which is a story I'll get to, I'm sure, at a later date. But I I think that sets the stage for the kind of experiences that the two of us had together. Uh, I've run God knows how many artists through his galleries, both good and bad experiences. So we've got some history. And and that's why it was special. It was special to me to get the opportunity to sit down in his little office in the basement of his gallery and, and have what amounted to be, I, I think we, we went on for about two hours, the two of us talking. And even though this is a guy that I've known now for nearly 20 years, um, I got to hear stories from him that I've never heard before. I, I had no idea what the full background is, was of this friend. Uh, some of the things that came out were absolutely precious to know about your own friend. But in addition to that, Jeff did a lot of thinking about where this business is going and where he's going in it. I found that he's in a very similar place to what I described about myself in uh, episode 00 that came before this, the the pre-episode, if you will, uh, that he's he's there with a lot of us in this field doing a lot of um, personal review about where he is in this industry, uh, where he's going and where he feels the industry is going. And I think you're going to hear that in his voice. And without any further introduction, I'd like to bring you to that conversation I had with Jeff in his gallery in Soho on a Saturday afternoon, sitting in his office in the basement. No, and 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 the irony is, I don't think too many people can understand 9/11, which happened all those years ago, yeah. has still and does continue to have a profound effect on how people operate and run their businesses. I mean, it, 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 we're still sort of sort of coming out of it, recovering from it, if you will. But uh, you know, there are various. These are the things. These are the what do we call them? The 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 bumps. You know. On the in the ride of owning your your own business, there are always going to be things. Well, we used to have a line in our business, you know, after nine eleven, which was every time we would make plans for something and try to get it all together. One of us, and I think Daniel started this, would say, "That's all well and good until someone flies a plane into a building." Know. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, I know. I know. It's just like we live in a world where we we, we certainly if we, we learn one lesson, it should be. You know, anything could change radically at any time. Yeah, yeah. it gets loopy. It yeah. gets loopy at times, and it could be anything. I mean, it could be staffing issues. It could be. I mean, it could be anything. Uh, yeah. The market does a, a tumble. It also, you know, what also occurs to me is that this business, this art business, whatever we want to call it, some people call it a racket. Some people call it a, a service. Some people, you know, it's certainly we sell things that people don't need. Um, but I always tell people that it serves a need, you know, uh-huh. it, it fills a need. And it's not a, it's not a need for survival. It, it's a need for a harmony and beauty and the things that art is. But, but clearly it's, a, it's an industry that is not about buying shoes and food and clothing and shelter. Um, and so we have to sort of get into that mode of understanding that what we do is something different. It's something special. And I know now after 35 years of being in the industry that where the loops are and where the bumps are and honesty and forthrightness and 
you know, doing what one can do to sustain a business on any level is a difficult thing to do. But what we do specifically is a, is a, a, a relatively more difficult thing to do than sell shoes or food um, to some degree. Yeah, one has pluses and minuses. I mean, one thing I remember acknowledging pretty early when I was selling art is, yeah, I've got my hand out like everybody else with these people, but I'm probably the only person today that had his hand out that wasn't related to something that was just depressing. You know what I mean? It wasn't a medical bill. It wasn't their plumber. It wasn't, you know, the roofer or something like that or taxes. I mean, at least at the end of the day, you got something pretty that you can be happy about and no, I, I yeah. still find it quite gratifying, you know, after being in this business for so long, people 10, 15 years later coming in and saying, yeah, we bought this 10 years ago and we still love it. And, you know, we moved and we've now got another, you know, this and we want to buy another that. And um, what do you got? And we get your emails all the time and we come to your openings whenever we can. And, you know, those kinds of things about long longevity, which is a difficult thing to build. Because it in- incorporates trust, and it incorporates um, service, um, it incorporates communication, it incorporates uh, a whole slew of things. It also incorporates a, a relationship with artists, which is um, sort of a difficult thing for many people to do. A- and I personally have always said I'm a lucky art dealer to some degree in that I sit on both sides of the fence. I went to art school. I studied art. I was a sculptor. A sculptor. I have sold my own art. I've had my own, my own art in galleries. I know what it feels like. So the relationships that we've had with artists, if you really do look at our roster, the bulk of whom we represent have been with us for many, many, many years. I mean, you know, 10, 15 years in some cases. Um, and I work really hard at that because I think in the end, the relationship with the artist to some degree is just as important with my relationship with my client, my collector. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, you represent a part of the art dealing that I really respect a lot, which is also taking a stand on something. And I don't mean in a political way, but you have art that you believe in and you no, really I do. represent I do. it. I do. Yeah. It sort of brings up two other things that that come to mind that pop international galleries has always sort of had this this mandate somehow that whatever we do with a show or whomever we represent there has to be some community tie-in uh-huh. you know to some degree you know a charitable organization or um we'll do a special event for um a particular group or organization that will benefit from it um, and usually our artists are totally game with that, for that. I mean, it's a, it makes sense. And it, 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 besides the obvious publicity that it, it derives, that's not the motivation for us. It's this idea of being in a community, trying to sell material to a community. And if you're not part of the community, you sort of get lost in the shuffle to some degree. I'd imagine that also keeps you grounded. It does. It does, because... I, I'll be the first to admit, hand up here in the air, I have an ambivalent relationship with money. I'm not someone who feels the need to amass money. I feel that a business needs to serve a purpose and it needs to um, make money. There's nothing wrong with making money and, 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 and sort of becoming prosperous. But it's what you do and how you do it that to me is, is far more important. And I've learned that because my business operates in a, a part of the stratosphere of the art world that is what I consider the middle market. Mm-hmm. We, we're not selling posters and we're not selling $100 million Picassos. We're selling art to people who A, don't know how to buy art or collect art. And we're selling art in a price range that serves a particular part of the market. And it's usually that part of the market that takes a tumble or a hit when something happens in the world. So when 9-11 happens, yeah. the middle market falls right. falls out. Um, so it's been a challenge, I have to admit. Well, we come from the same place. And at one time when we got into it, I think it was the most prudent place, which is you had a lot of people scrambling you know, for the very wealthy. That was a highly competitive world. And 
the middle market though was always something you could depend on. Absolutely. Which was in this country, we always had an emerging middle class, and it's I always think been it's still emerging. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's emerging from something deeper yeah, now, I mean, you know. Yeah. And it's always been this kind of tradition of as you emerge, you created your own legacies, right, along the way. It's not something you inherited, you know, as you would from the European traditions, if you will. You know, you built that for yourselves. And this is what you were out there doing. You were buying, you know, the things that represented you as you came up, your furniture, your cars, your house, and then your artwork along the way. And I think that, you know, when they talk about the middle class dying, well, they're well, not wrong. It's fascinating to me because I'm an immigrant. And, and my story is no different than your average immigrant that everybody's talking about politically today. I came to America with $100 in my pocket. It, it's actually fascinating to me when I, you know, I, my kids roll their eyes when I tell them, I came to America with $100 in my pocket. <laughs> but I did. And, and what that sort of translated into over, you know, the last 30 years to me has become meaningful, not because of the day I remember taking that $100 bill to the, the bank that doesn't exist anymore and breaking that $100 bill knowing it's only 100 bucks, man. You're going to break this $100 bill. You're done. You better, you better do something. 35 years later, looking at what a business did, you know, what we did. We, we've sent kids through college. I'm not talking about my own kids. I'm talking about people who've worked for us. I'm talking about the artists who we've represented over, over the time. Um, how many millions of dollars have gone into the pockets of artists that um, had no representation before they came to pop? Um, so, so, so these are the kinds of things to me that are, are meaningful relative to money. Mm-hmm. Not money meaning, you know, being that money itself is important, but what you can achieve in the sort of middle class market that we're talking about. And I've chased it down heavily. And, and it is a struggling market. In many ways, um, you know, we're, we're watching a political campaign right now, and all they talk about is the middle class. But it's the middle class that really does have the hardest time of all. I think we're struggling in two ways. I think the obvious, which is, you know, inflation has worked in a way, and 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 lack of in the salaries, and the increase in the cost of living, and all those obvious things, and medical expenses medical is a big one. And those are the obvious ones. But the other one is, I think. Uh, out of it has come a sense of panic and, and desperation and a l- lack of a sense of I can count on the fact that we'll continue to do better over the years. I think that if, as much as you were desperate at one time or you got into a house and you could almost afford but not quite and you know you felt that pinch and that kind of kept you up at night, there was still this optimism in the back of everybody's mind of well, the American time will, dream, right? Right. Well, time will go on and I'll get raises or a little bit better job or whatever. And, you know, things will happen that will change my condition and it'll kind of even out. And we don't have that optimism now. No, I, I totally agree. And, and, part of, and part of what we've strived to do ostensibly, we have a policy here at this gallery not to sell art on the basis of investment. I have let sales consultants go when I hear them say, if you buy this, it's going to be worth this in X amount of years. It's because it's, it's just it's so weak anyway. It's, it's a weak argument and it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's a myth. It's a fib. It's a great yeah. lie. I mean, that's part of what we were talking about earlier about the, the, the notion of this industry being perceived of as a racket to some degree. The irony is that much of what we've sold to many of our loyal, loyal collectors has turned their collections have turned into significant collections. I'll share a sad story. I have a wonderful collector who, who hit some hard times. And he called me up and he said, hey, any shot that we could run some of this stuff back through your gallery and see if I can, you know, it'll help me get back on my feet. And in no time at all, you know, the material that he had bought because it had sort of been advised properly what were good pieces. We always say buy what you love, have the visceral reaction and, you know, know what it is that makes you your heart pound or your eyes well up with tears when you buy a piece of art. But the more you do that, the better you get at knowing what is valuable or potentially valuable without my having to tell you that this is an investment. Um, well, I used to tell collectors that that's your insurance. 
Yeah, I so always to say I've got a really good stockbroker I could refer you to if you want to hear about investment. That too, but I also used to say, <laughs> you know, look, do you love it three thousand much? If you do, you're set. Yeah. You know, that's that's the guarantee because it could be worth zero in the future. But absolutely. But and if I, you know you're getting three thousand out of it, and you're paying three thousand. You've got a lot more coverage than any stock you'll buy. Exactly, and we also tell people that it's really important to buy a piece of art that you love and can afford than to buy a piece of art that you don't love that you think that's more valuable that you can't afford. Right. So, so our argument is always sort of buy what you love, develop a relationship with the people from whom you're buying, and over time, you will build a nice collection. Well, you also have one big hurdle, which is your art has to pretty much double for you to recover it, right? I mean, you've got to get out. As a consumer. As a consumer. You have to get over the expense that a gallery is going to put on top of it to sell it, or you have to go out into the field and compete with yeah, the gallery. Yeah, I, I, How many times I've tried to explain to somebody what the difference it is between wholesale and retail. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've had this conversation, and sometimes I feel like a little bit more of a bastard than others. <laughs> and But when people say, well, at the gallery, you know, this piece is five thousand dollars, and 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 why are you offering twenty five or three or whatever? Well, you can go get that five thousand if you want to go open up a Nick gallery and staff it and learn the profession and advertise and do all those things. Right, exactly. But the unfortunate part of that is the art you bought at some point has to surpass that that and its worth. It is, right, it's a threshold that. It's a, you know what it is? It's a physical threshold as much as it is um, an emotional or psychological threshold. Yeah. You know? and, and so we've found, because we also have a policy here at POP, not to inflate prices to play that, that really ugly discounting game. Put a three on it so you can oh, sell it my, at a two. You know, yeah. we, we just don't do that. And mm-hmm. I'm very, very proud over the last couple of decades that the one thing that this particular gallery organization has become known for is that there's, there's, a, there's a limit, that we have to be fair with one another. We have to be fair with the artist who's involved. We have to be fair with the art consultant who's going to get a commission. We have to be fair with the gallery owner. We have to be fair with the person who's buying the piece of art. So there's this notion, you know, I, <laughs> I should have lived on a kibbutz and called it quits a long time ago, you know. But it's this notion of... I don't see you as a farmer, but okay. (laughs) I I think that my desire to have tried to run a business that has been one that really dealt with the notion of selling a piece of art from an ethical-based point, knowing that I have relationships with the artists that we buy from or or the agents through whom the art comes to us. Those are long-term... Danny, how long have we known each other? 97? Not really long. Yeah. yeah. Not 97 years, by the way. No, but 97. <laughs> and I've known yeah. Daniel even longer. Yeah. So it's those kinds of relationships to me that sort of speak more of the value of what I do and how I spend my time and, 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 and reinforce. Actually, you know, when you hit those moments, those lulls where you go, oh, am I going to do this again in another five years? Yeah. I go back and I say, you know what? I've got great people that I've worked with over the years. They're wonderful relationships. It doesn't mean we're not going to take on new artists or, or move on or get rid of artists or artists are going to leave us because we've had a couple leave us for, I'll never understand why, but they have. The idea that there is a community of people that I've worked with over decades that I have a relationship with. You know, I mean, Danny Stern works, walks into my gallery. It's hugs. Yeah, it's not right. just a handshake and yeah. a good afternoon, how are you? It's hugs and kisses and how's everything and how's the family? And I mean, that to me somehow is what sort of defines the nature of what my business has become. The people who work here, it takes a very short period of time for them to learn that culture, you know, what our pop, pop culture is. Well, you know, as long as you're honest... It's not a profession that you make a real fortune, fortune in. So yeah, dealing in the middle market—that's true. Yeah, dealing in the middle market, but even a lot of the high-end market too. You know, I think there's a lot because of show. The margins are all so slim. And- They're slim, and also I think in the high end, and, and trust me, eventually I want to get some of these interviews to start dealing with you know the Mary Boons out there and yeah. such. Um, it's a lot of kind of moment in the sun type of businesses. Yeah, they don't have 
long, even numbers. They get hits, and most of their hits are based upon they'll get one artist at the right time and a couple collectors at the right time, and they'll kind of get a ride. And those will be huge numbers, but I don't think they sustain in the same way. In the long run. At least, yeah. I mean, you know, look, maybe they make their millions and they put it in the bank and the joke's on us, but they don't have... A, you know, a line as even along as we do, that is, on a no, graph. I would agree. Look, there, yeah. are, there are dealers on this planet who have become immensely successful. There's yeah. no, no question about it. How and why remains on lots of levels to be seen. Um, but, but for somebody who, who, who runs a gallery, right? I run a yeah. gallery. Um, and there are many of us. Uh, I had a conversation yesterday that there are close on 2,000 galleries in New York City alone. That, that says something. I mean, it says something about what exists in the market, what people are interested in, that there's an array, a broad array from which to choose. And the question is how you operate in that fray, because I, I think it is a, a, a sort of a war zone to some degree out there. It, it is about longevity in the end. Does it get as rewarded, you think, as much as it used to? And I'm not just talking about, you know, how many dollars are spent in our business and how much is there, you know, you for know, us, but I mean that's the, a great the customer. That, that's a really great question. Because we've gone through a lot of changes. I mean, just in the time that you and I have known oh, each other, the, the 18 years, sure. that's, that represents the time that the internet really came on as a big figure. That represents a couple big changes in the economy. Well, you know, the one thing I've no, I, I've come to learn about the internet, you know, we all, f you know, we all love the internet and we all fear it at the same yeah. time to some degree. What I've come to really and truly understand about the internet, and we've had art, we have art on our website for sale. We haven't sold a single piece of art off our website, but the pieces of art that are on the website are selling. So what will happen is somebody will see it on the, on the web and then they'll come into the gallery and they'll say, I saw this piece of art on your website for sale. I'd like to see it. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I, over and over and over again, have come to understand that collectors or new-time buyers or whomever it is, they like to smell it. They like to touch it. They like to, to feel it. They, they want to look at the frame. They want to you know, see how it's going to hang on the wall. And, and so we've become quite adept in a way, actually, using the internet to help us, A, bring people into the gallery. But I found that um, one of the great things we do right now is we're all Photoshop adept. So somebody will send us a photograph of a wall inside their <laughs> house, and we'll drop in variations of pictures for them. So a lot of European collectors have been in the gallery mm -hmm. and they've seen two or three pieces and they can't really make up their mind. I'll just say, take a picture of the wall that you're thinking about and we'll give me the dimensions. We'll scale it out. It doesn't matter angles. We can angle photographs, uh, the images. We can do whatever. And we'll Photoshop it for you. You can see what it's going to look like in your house. Right. And it's turned out to be a remarkable tool. It does take some skill and someone needs to learn how to, you know, know how to use Photoshop in order to do it, but there, there are ways to use the internet. Well, even go further, though, it, it doesn't just take the skill of working with the Photoshop you know, application to make that happen. It also takes the skill to gaining the attention of that customer. And the trust. And the trust, the trust right. Is everything you can't just do that. No. Someone can't just walk in off the street and you know, you say, well, I don't want to get a picture of your house and start dropping in pictures. You know, that's a real job right there. And that's the one that never gets replaced by technology. That's true. The, in the end, the vast majority of our relationships with the clients with whom we deal are long-term, ongoing, repeat. Yeah, we, we, you know, I'd say 40% of our business repeat business, which is astonishing. That's really big. You know, it's astonishing. Yeah. And we've really worked at that. Um, um, we have a lot of repeat business. And the location, of course, is important because of the foot traffic. Um, but the rent is too damn high and, you know, all the other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it, goes, it goes along with it. Yeah, and I worry about that stuff. You know, it's funny when you mentioned the 2,000 galleries, I was prepared to hear something quite to the opposite because from my perspective, it feels like we're having too few galleries in our business now. And, 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 you know, once you start kind of identifying our little separate strata, just us folks in the middle, if you will, you know, not frame shops, not the top edge, yeah, yeah. you know, 
it's a lot less than it used to be. Well, it's it's and, about it's about I would say not counting the schlocky frame shop kind of gallery, it's probably about fifteen hundred galleries in New York City. Yeah, Whether I'm talking the, about nationally yeah, though. Oh, okay, yeah, okay, but I'm saying just in New York City, and I'm talking, and I'm not necessarily talking about. Um, street level, you know, there's, right. there's a difference between a street level foot traffic gallery and someone who's on the third floor of a building somewhere. Um, but it's a different model. And, and I think that that is actually a, a key issue in this conversation is like, what is your gallery model? You know, how do you define yourself? And in terms of how one defines oneself, are you a third floor walk up? or mm-hmm. elevated gallery, or are you a street-level gallery, or are you in a new and burgeoning neighborhood um, taking the risk in the beginning, thinking you know, that X is going to happen or Y is going to happen? You know, should we be moving to Brooklyn, or should we be moving to Jersey City? You know, or should we just be moving slightly east <laughs> or slightly <laughs> west? Because you know? clearly we've seen shifts in New York City, particularly where galleries have moved to, you know, Soho became immensely expensive and Chelsea opened. Yeah, one time and, Soho was the only place really right, to have a but gallery. Chelsea right yeah. now is, uh, is for many people, untenable. I mean, it, it, the rents are ridiculous. It's still uh-huh. a destination area. Um, and the amount of money that people spend on spaces up there is almost akin to what, you know, they spend down here in Soho. It's it's obscene. It's just obscene. So you, you might as well be in Soho. So you may as well be if you can if you can swing it. Yeah, right. You know, if you can find a space and if you can get a deal, right. Yeah. Well, it, it, what ultimately defines where you're going to have a space is what. Now, this to me is the key, really, thing about this whole conversation is what it is that you're selling. You know, w- w- what are your price points? What can you What's your volume like? You know, who are the artists that you're really dealing with? You know, is it a one-shot, flash-in-the-pan kind of thing that's going to last for a year? Or do you have artists that you can, you know, have longevity with that, you know, run for five to ten years or longer or never leave you kind of thing? Um, Those are the questions that, to me, are the ones that I'm asking now. Um, Because you well know many of the artists that we have in this gallery have been with us for many years. Some have left us. We've had some experiences, mutual experiences. <laughs> um, Danny, we're just little ants scrambling around on this earth. Exactly. Okay, that's all we are. Yeah. Right. You know, Look, when the things I, I, happen. You know, I think that's also a fair point to be made, yeah. uh, regardless of our being little ants scrambling about on the planet. I think being prepared to some degree is really important, if you can, as much as possible. You know, you mitigate loss because you can anticipate something if you've done something long enough. And then there's just the, the, you wake up in the morning one day and there's the shock of all shocks and you go, holy cow, you know, yeah. right? And it could be anything, could absolutely be. anything. The first gallery I worked in, when I started, I found out after being there a couple months that they were getting out from being underneath the weight. When I say getting out, actually they were just in the beginning of it and they were going through the process of getting out of it for, I think it was a one or $2 million lawsuit from the estate, from their main artist, who they were still representing. And they were kind of caught in this sort of uh, sharecropper farm type situation almost, you know, where it's like, now you have to push as much of that art as possible to pay off the debt to get, you know, to these people. Yeah, well, look, I think most small businesses to some degree run that risk. Litigation, this is a very litigious country. I mean, as a foreigner, I'm like still blown away living here all these years, like who will sue who for what? It's just amazing to me. It's part of what what we all deal with to some degree. Let's go with that foreigner thing for a bit. (laughs) Because there's an aspect of this whole thing that I want in this series of conversation. I don't want it to be just about business. I don't want it to be just about any one thing in particular. But I think the part that fascinates me most is who are the people who construct this industry? Because, you know, I'm almost afraid that... There's a chance it's going to change form rather soon. It is changing form. Well, I think form. it is already. Yeah. If and it, it hasn't. Right. And I think there's a culture to it. And either I'm identifying a very distinct culture, maybe for the first time, just by kind of documenting it, and possibly even documenting a culture that's on its way out. I think one thing that 
our generation of art dealers lost track of or never fully understood was we weren't coming into some industry that's always been around either. It was very new. And it's really kind of this post-war phenomenon. So if I could jump on that one. Yeah, right. This notion of being a foreigner. The, uh, it is actually quite astonishing to me within the last year or two how many dealers or potential dealers outside of the United States would like to replicate what we do in their countries. We're seeing it in England right now. Well, I, I'm gonna England looks like the 1980s in the United States. I know. I'm going to name a few. England... I've been I've been pounded on to 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 yeah. to, to try and get involved. Germany, mm-hmm. no question. Seeing the same thing, and I'm not saying Berlin because Berlin's a whole other Mischgas on itself. Um, but you know, Munich, for example, is is an unbelievably. It's one of the wealthiest cities in the world. It, it would be a perfect place to open a gallery, but they don't have the they don't have the history that we have in the in, in, in the US or New York, you know, to sort of run those kinds of galleries. Although there are many galleries in Munich, um, Dubai. Yeah, I have been hit up four times now to open a gallery in Dubai, and we're very very close at this point to to actually considering doing that. I think, rather surprisingly to some. Dubai has a lot closer of a connection to who we are and why galleries work in our culture than in England or in Germany or in parts of Europe. I I think this whole thing about a new place, new money, new traditions, emerging from old traditions. Correct, because all all these expats who live there are one thing. Yeah. But then there's this sort of local population that's got scads of money to spend and are seeing a model that could work really, really well. And as I say, Dubai for me is quite fascinating right now. At the same time, though, Dubai for the past 10 years has become this kind of catchword that sends up my, uh, my radar well, every time I hear it. It, it, it. It's like the equivalent of on the East Coast hearing about you know, the strikes of gold on the West Coast. And no, you know, in reality, very few people are going to go there and really strike. Well, it seems to me, from what I my research and the people that I'm speaking with, um, that there clearly is an opportunity. I'm not talking about opening up in Afghanistan, but I'm certainly you know a, a stable place where there is an international, major, settled group of expats who live a very high quality of life. Whether it's focusing on expats alone, which I don't think is the way to do it, and introducing locals to what it is that they're interested in because anything american somehow still seems to have this cachet you know, mm-hmm. that somehow if it if it comes from america it must be good it's just fascinating but you know I, I think that's kind of be corrected a little bit too because yeah, we often I, say I, I that i don't think it is you know this kind of brand of quality n- not that i'm saying it's not a brand of quality i'm saying it represents something more important it also represents the new but, um, okay, so I'm going to keep on re- rewinding you back yeah, okay, a little rewinding. bit because I, I want to get a little bit of your story, too. <laughs> so how old were you when you came here? So, so I, I actually left South Africa in the height of apartheid. I'd been arrested for anti-apartheid activities. I was drafted into the South African military. And when I was in the army... Sort of did something. Oh, their punishment for anti-apartheid activities was to put you in their military. I was in the military, and I, I. It's a long story which we don't have to get into in great length, but I got arrested while I was in the military. It had mostly to do with my activity, uh-huh. and it didn't go very far. But I knew that were I to have stayed. I probably wouldn't be sitting in front of you here today. I had this conversation with my father a long time ago that uh, as opposed as he was to my having left um, South Africa, he was very pleased that I did because he probably wouldn't have had a son. Um, A lot of people disappeared. A lot of people were hurt. A lot of people were locked up. Um, There are people today we still don't know where they are. Anyway. So did you really flee it when you left? boogied out. A week after I got out of the South African military, I was gone. Wow. I, I was 19 years old. I'm 55. I've lived more outside of South Africa than I have in South Africa, and yet I still have 
all of this South Africanness in me. You know, my parents still live there; they're aging. My brother lives there. Um, I have a ton of family there still. So I, I, I got the heck out. Not so much because I had ideology, you know, to go and live in some beautiful place somewhere or start a utopian whatever. I boogied because, in retrospect, looking back. I probably wouldn't be sitting in front of you today where I to have stayed. Um, but I was 19. That kind of puts a context in your entire life, for your entire life, doesn't it? It's like as bad as things get or whatever, you know, you're not in that situation. And that's as bad as it's going to get, probably. <clears throat> Look, it could have been worse, um, I suppose. You know, there are tons of people who had it worse off than I did. And, and, and I, I made it. I, my South African citizenship was stripped I found out not so long ago, which is really interesting. That must be kind of recent. Y- yeah, I, I mean, I can because I travel on a on a U.S. passport today. But um, it but was, I remember you voted in the first uh, Democratic presidential election I in voted South for Africa. Nelson yeah, I, I think I talked to you that I, week. We, yeah, I, I was so excited. Yeah, that week. I had my you, baby. Uh-huh. She was little, and we put you know a picture of Mandela on her stroller, and we went up to vote. That day was a remarkable day, you know, thinking back now. I haven't thought about it in a long time, Danny. It sort of makes me a little emotional. Honestly. I mean, how can it not? I mean, that's a big life full circle kind it of was, thing. It was, and I remember, you know, we had to put ink, that they put ink on our fingers to show that we Right. Oh, it gee. Ink. Even here at the embassy, they were yeah. doing that? Wow. Yeah. And there were two places to vote. There was, you could vote at the embassy, and then you could vote, I believe, at the United Nations. Uh-huh. Um, or if, it, or if you couldn't vote at the United Nations, it's a big celebration at the United Nations. And so we walked up to the UN. I pushed my child in the stroller from the embassy to the United Nations. And man, there was a party going oh, on. Oh, I bet. It was really, really remarkable. Uh, she was a baby, so she couldn't really appreciate what it was. Um, I, think both my kid, thought, yeah. I think both my kids, as a result of their father having been this political animal, um, sort of have, I mean, the college my son chose in the end was just one of those really highly political places. And and my daughter, having graduated from Georgetown University, which is a feat in and of itself. You know, you do all the heavy lifting with your children when they're babies. That's the whole point. And, and I think all the heavy lifting was done. I, I had an incredibly effective wife as a mother. We used to call her the Uber mother. <laughs> um, she just, you know, we, the heavy lifting was done nice and early and my politics and her, whatever it is that made her such a great mother. And I like to think I was an okay dad. Well, that's um, a big deal too, because you started this gallery with them being infants. Babies. Yeah. You know, at a time that you had to put in 12, 14 hour days, oh, longer you know, than getting that, this going. No money and having to yeah. borrow money and, you know, <clears throat> scrape things together and sort of, you know, make those commitments. I, I couldn't even imagine. I think part of the reason I never had kids is just that fear of being up every night, worried that I'm going to be able to, you know, provide for them. And yeah, well, that to me has always sort of been like a uh, an honor, privilege, pleasure kind of thing. The bigger thing for me was how the hell was I going to do it? Yeah, you know, you know, working for people, taking jobs, doing whatever it was. I taught English to Russian students, and as a consequence, I learned to speak a bit of Russian and. You know, oh, that's where you got it from. I never knew. Where, yeah, remember we yeah we talked about my speaking <laughs> Russian. I, it served me well. Yeah, you know, but I'm okay with languages in general. So I speak a few, and it's been wonderful to have that ability in the in 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 the the gallery business because so many of our clients come from all over the world. It always pays off. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I remember I, early on I worked with an art dealer who spoke German. And that was huge for him. Yeah, it's been yeah. huge for me. I speak German, I speak a little French, I speak Russian, I speak Hebrew, I speak Dutch. You know, so, I mean, there's, there's, it's been very helpful. Um, and my kids are linguists as well, so... I was just flashing to that scene of Bananas, by the way, when he's in bed with uh, the girl, the, the one who played Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. <laughs> and she, she says, speak to me in French. French yeah. right? and he goes, how about Hebrew? Yeah, it's hilarious. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. All right, so you've come to this country, you're fleeing the apartheid government, you have $100 in your pocket, you've just got out of the military, you've now taught some language, you know, 
Yeah, actually, I went by Israel. You got your education. Said, uh, whatever. I got my via Israel, via other parts of Europe, and settled. Met met a woman. Landed up coming to New York and finished my degree and my master's degree at uh, the Cranbrook Art Academy in Michigan, which is quite a remarkable place. I, I didn't realize at the time to even have been considered um, for that academy was such a such a big deal. But I got in. You know, it was sort of one of these stupid, duh. You know, I. Uh, and then you realize afterwards, I mean, there were 150 students accepted wow. to study at that place. Um, and I was one of two in my department. Did you uh, think you were on your way to a career as an artist? Yeah. I mean, it oh, seems yeah. like a silly question, but yeah. yeah. I, I, I thought I would be. or uh, And I thought at some point I would probably teach, which is something that's cropping up now. Yeah. Uh, I, I've been invited to be, you know, a guest professor at a couple of places and... Um, but yeah, I came to New York. I had a studio of shows and sold art and, you know, built up a little collector base. And So at what point did you become an art dealer? So when did I become an art dealer? When did you become an art dealer? So I, I realized very soon after having children that having a studio in Brooklyn, while in and of itself was a, a remarkable thing to do, to have a, a studio in, in Dumbo, um, that I needed to, uh, I would need to make some money. And I got a fantastic job with a company called the Great American Salvage Company, which doesn't exist any longer, where we would go into buildings and we would take, you know, anything from mantelpieces to old bathtubs to gargoyles off the, the, the front of the building before it got demolished. And uh, the guys who started this business had a marvelous business of, you know, pulling all these beautiful artifacts, real art, I mean, architectural art, into um, one central space and then resell it either to um, restore something or it was very much in vogue at the time where decorators and designers would come and find little bits and pieces of New York City and incorporate, you know, those elements into new design. I developed a whole division for the company where we took our architectural artifacts and built furniture out of it. Um, oh, that sounds so fantastic. It, it, yeah. it addressed my sculptural abilities and, and my own creative stuff. Um, but there was a partnership issue as there so often can be. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the business went under. And I figured, you know what? I know how to sell. I know how to deal with people, um, I'm going to look for a, a gallery position. And I remember my wife coming home one night saying, there's a, there's a company that's looking for someone to be in a gallery in the South Street Seaport. And I went down and I had the interview and we had a really lovely chat. And this is really in the late 80s, I would say, at this point. And um, this is really in the heat of it then. Yeah, very much yeah. so. You know, when all the, the, the big chains of galleries existed and had mm -hmm. gone public and, uh, you know, talk, talk about, um, what was the word we used? The racket. Yeah. Um, but it was also in the 80s when this was in fashion. It was. And I remember having a wonderful interview with someone saying, no, I don't think we want you to be the director of the gallery in, at the South Street Seaport. We want to bring you to our flagship gallery so we can train you to do bigger and better things. And uh, one thing led to another, and I, became, I worked for them for a number of years, and I became the director of another organization that shall remain unnamed. And then the opportunity, when that organization went belly up at, it, at its time, the only profitable center was the one that I was running, or one of the only profitable mm -hmm. centers was the one I was running. It made sense at that point, to consider the notion of, like, should we do our own thing? And I had a partner at the time, and we, we went into it. In, in 90, and, and in 1997, we opened Pop International Gallery. But that was a big decision. It was a huge decision, because I had no money. I mean, you know, I was making a living, Yeah. you know, supporting a family and children and the whole thing. But I didn't come from money, and I didn't have money, so I had to scrape money together and borrow money and... But at that point, you have to kind of make a choice. You know, am I staying in the business? Am I going to work for someone else? If I go to work with someone else, yeah. what's going to look like? You know, but yeah. one of that option, one of those options being to now get yourself into a twenty-five year lease. Well, I was young yeah. enough and stupid enough, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, we looked around and found places, and 
we've been in this location since the day we opened and found this location. I remember looking at it, pulling my former business partner into it, and he he sort of looked and said, this is a mess. We can never fix this up. And here we are, you know, almost 20 years later. Almost 20 years later, what do you think's changed the most? So I I think that the the business has shifted dramatically over 20 years because of the internet, no question at all. I, you know, I think we were probably one of the first galleries to actually have email. Um, I was very much like forceful about being sort of ahead of the game to some degree. I mean, I remember at the Great American Salvage Company, we had a Polaroid camera and we used to mm-hmm. take pictures of things and then pop them in the mail. I worked at a gallery where we would have copies made at a one-hour lab like crazy. Yeah, that's what we would do. And we would with glue stick glue stick attach it attach it to black paper yeah and <laughs> yeah. yeah we did that uh-huh we did that so when email became a a, a real potential i said we're going to get email i think we had a you know an aol account or something or whatever it was at the time but eventually we got our own mail server and we had our own we developed a website and things you know i think i think the electronic you know this whole cyber world has been the most dramatically changing thing has the the market shifted well there have been as we said earlier in this conversation you know 9-11 and the crash of 2008 and i i think there's another one coming frankly that there are things that affect the business you know that that could make it loopy or bumpy or whatever it is but the most profound change i really believe is the cyber sort of ability to to sell art to people through email that you've met or you know that 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 kind of thing the other thing that we do we do because we're sort of this this gallery that really targets this middle market is we make things accessible we have layaway programs we have we have a system where you could buy a piece of art over 12 months and around Christmas time over 18 months interest-free. Most galleries don't, don't do that. And we use, we use that a lot. People love it, especially younger collectors. Well, I like that version a lot, actually. I was always very uncomfortable you know, when the credit start, uh, plans started showing up in galleries. We even had specific credit cards for the gallery and, or you know, you'd call up to get the client financed. And I, I just always have this feeling that if someone needs to get a new credit line to purchase something, it just doesn't seem right. Well, you know, we versus it worked, it worked really well for us. Yeah, because I know it's very effective. It's very I've just effective. always made me uncomfortable. It, well, it, it it has never made me uncomfortable because it it allows, for example, a younger collector who we want to nurture along, right? Our our our, our sort of game plan our our raison d'etre whatever you want to call it was not to have one-off sales we wanted to have people build collections we wanted to help people grow meaningful collections and whatever that means you know what's a meaningful collection you know who the artist is what you pay for it so on and so forth and and helping a younger collector who was really interested in collecting art having um, what we call our little pop card has been very, very useful and very helpful and very meaningful and has allowed people over the years to continue to buy art. So, you know, you, you sort of find tools. That, that's really what it is in the end. You know, you find all kinds of tools and applications and methods and, you know, a, a very big thing for us is training salespeople. I think that's one of the biggest parts of our business. It's, it, if not and, anything, it's the key. And I think that's that's usually where most galleries fail, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, and, and usually not because they're not training them, but because, <laughs> in many cases, the people who own the galleries who would be responsible for that never got indoctrinated into it themselves. Well, and I, it is a tradition. I, I think can it's, tell you that people like you and I, who yeah. came up through the systems that we did, went through some pretty significant training. I know I did. Um, I definitely did too. And I have now developed subsequently over the years that we've been in business, I have a sales training manual that's, you know, 60 pages deep. 
And when new people come on, we go through that manual. And we have sales meetings regularly and we pull up, you know, aspects of the manual like how to deal with this and how to help with that and, you know, how to qualify people properly and how to, I mean, it's sales. We're in the but sales for me, the, the big part of it was just the real mentoring. Right. And it was observing it being done. So, it was almost like you had to apprentice in a correct, way. Correct. Uh, you know, I've often said, I don't think I really could confidently know what this job was or knew what this job was until I had seen a presentation given a couple hundred times. Right. And I have to say that having worked for some big gallery organizations prior to opening this one, yeah. there were a couple of individuals that I watched and I was blown away by, by, by what they did and how they did it. And, and then of course, you know, I've always been, I've always maintained that as a, a sales trainer that you have to blown away in a positive some, way you meant. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is to help people find their own sort of way Yeah. to find the best part of it about it that, that suits their personality and yet doesn't sort of, you know, lose focus on what you need to do in order to make a sale. Um, because in the end we are selling things and I'm proud to be a salesperson. And, you know, a lot of people sort of, I've noticed over the years, people that have come in don't like to be called salespeople. Well, we are salespeople and there's nothing wrong with being a salesperson. We live in a, we live in a country that is a, uh, uh, what's it called again? (laughs) Well, I I think, I think you only, it's, it's only, um, it's only a negative. It's, it's, it's only a pejorative word when it's been skirted. Correct. You so know, because then you stigmatize it. it by avoiding it. And once you stigmatize it, then you make it something that... So the word sales in this company has always been a positive word. Mm-hmm. I like to see one of my sales consultants, when they're getting a deal, strutting down that, you know, gallery, long gallery floor to come and get an invoice to fill out because I know what that feels like. I still get teased when I make a sale, which is, you know, I, I defer most of everything to, to the, the people who work for us. But there is an occasion, an old client or something, I still have that feeling. And I feel st- myself strutting down, you know, the, the gallery floor to go get an invoice to fill out and do what it is that we do. Um, but I just had that experience in its own way, not more than a couple of days ago. But it is. It, where, you know, I, I mean, I don't get to deal with collectors all the time. Very rarely, actually. But I got to deal with one on the phone that a gallery's selling a big painting to, and they were way off track with the person. And I knew exactly who that customer was. And I got to have one of those, I call it, you know, the collar-grabbing kind of conversations yeah, yeah, yeah. where you just go like, buddy, you just got to listen to me here. And, and you know, you finish, you go, yes. Yeah. You know, but like, also, first you have to earn it. Yeah, you know, you no have to question. earn that relationship. No and then you got to connect with the person while you earn it and then give you the right to make your bold statement and kind of no take them by the arm no and say, look, this, this is, is it. Yeah. So, so we, we talk about a lot about listening here uh-huh. um, in our gallery. I mean, if you listen to what people say and you keep your mouth shut mm-hmm. uh, and then address what they're saying, qualify them properly, um, overcome their objections, there's no reason not to make a sale. And not, there's no reason not to be a... I'm going to share something with you. Please. A number of years ago, a young guy who... I'd seen on the street, came to me and he said, I would really love to work for you. And I said, really, what do you do? He said, well, I'm a babysitter and I work in a restaurant as a, um, as when you meet, when they meet people, what do you call them? Uh, oh, host. host. As a uh-huh. host. And I said, look, I like your appearance. I like your energy. I like your enthusiasm, I'm willing to give you an internship here for a little while. I'll buy you lunch every day, you'll participate in everything that we do, you'll learn everything about what we do, and then we'll talk about what what you really want to do. This kid, he wasn't really so young, so he came to intern for me and he learned everything. He made it a point to find out what, where every piece was in the back room. He learned about our inventory. He learned about our operation systems. He learned how to hang the... He's, he can hang a gallery better than I've seen anybody hang a gallery in a very, very long time. He really poured his heart and soul into this internship. And then he came to me and he said, okay, 
boss? He used to call me boss. Uh, how about something else now? What do you think? Do you think after I've like earned my internship thing? <laughs> I said, okay, you can have a part-time job as a gallery aide and I'll pay you hourly, which will mean lots of things. It'll mean packing and shipping and doing all kinds of things. And he jumped on it. Like this guy was like dead set. I started to talk a little bit more with him and I wanted to know what he wanted to do. And he said, I really want to be an art consultant. I said, okay, he got it. And today, Michael is our number one selling art consultant no in this gallery. And yesterday we celebrated a number that he had hit, which is a golden number uh-huh. that every art consultant dreams of hitting in collective sales or an in individual sales in, sales? A month. in a month okay and what that could represent in a year mm-hmm. and what that could represent as a salary and all that stuff you know if you can maintain that kind of level of selling and it was i put it down to two things a really motivated young person who was mentored properly and i get texts from him now and then Hey, I just want to tell you how much I love working with you. Hey, you're the greatest boss I've ever had. Uh-huh. Hey, thanks for letting me work at Pop. And I said, <laughs> you can take your nose out of my butt now. <laughs> just come to work and make some sales. Uh-huh. Okay? <laughs> but it is true. It was about being trained properly. It was about being mentored properly. It was about understanding the corporate culture, our mm-hmm. corporate culture. And it was about... having some natural talent that got nurtured and and shaped and I'm very proud of it. Hey, it's Danny and I am very sorry that I uh, ended that a little bit abruptly, but there's a reason for that. It might have sounded like I ended it before it was done and you're right. I ended it before it was done. There's more. We're going to turn this into a two-part episode. That was a great conversation I had with Jeff. We got so much wonderful stuff out of it. We got everything out of it that I hoped I would be able to bring you in these conversations. Not just wisdom, not just some great tips and tricks and some wonderful perspective on the field that we're in, and those are not, you know, unimportant. They are very important. But also an opportunity to introduce another art-selling professional to you. an opportunity for us to all get to know each other better. And like I said in that introduction episode I did called 00, if you want to go back and listen to it, I think it's worth it understanding what we got going on here. Like I said then, I want this to be a place where we could have an honest and raw conversation about where we are, where we're coming from and where we're going. And I don't think that's going to happen if I tidy these up too much. I could I could make this like an NPR style piece. I can go into my uh, you know, audio editing software and clean it up a thousand times uh, and, and just get down to the gold. But that wouldn't be what it's supposed to be. This has got to be, as I said, it's got to be honest. I'm going to use that word a lot, so forgive me if I exhaust it after a while. But it's just uh, the best one that I can come up with for what we're shooting for. You may have noticed that we changed locations here, and you would be right. Uh, we are no longer in my office on top of a hill in San Francisco. We are in a location a little bit more casual than that, and there's a reason for it. When I began this podcast, and I say it like we're 100 episodes in, I mean when I began it in my mind, thinking out what it would become as it's been developed. I gave some thought not only to the kind of conversations that I would hope we would have and what they would do and what they would produce, but also where they take place. And only one thing kept on coming back and back and back. And that was that little bar around the corner from the gallery. The one that after we said goodbye to the last clients, uh the one that after we've shut off the lights, armed the alarm, locked the door that uh we slipped away to just for a quick break. Just a little little space in between finishing our day selling art to people and going back to uh rejoin with our husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends or just a wonderful pet dog or cat. A place where we can decompress, where 
We got to talk about the day that we just had, the people that we met, the sales that we made or didn't make, whatever it would be. Uh, discuss, you know, the things we want to do more of and less of, or even get a little bit deeper and talk about who we are as individuals, where we came from and how we got here. You know, exact same conversations we're trying to get out of this podcast. That's the bar I want to be for all of them. Wherever it is that your gallery is located, your office, your auction house, or whatever it is you work out of when you do this shared thing of selling art one way or the other, wherever that place is, I want this to be still just a half a block away from that place. I want this to be the place that every two weeks we come back with a regular podcast episode that you can slide into along with everybody else, pull up a chair, order up a cocktail at the bar, Sit down and join me in that back corner booth, eavesdrop on what is a fantastic conversation with another art dealer, another art selling professional, but also maybe join in yourself at some time or another, either through a comment you send to us or uh, maybe even being a guest on the show itself. I want this to be our watering hole for the business of selling art. I don't know what to call that place just yet, making up a name of your own. But whatever it is, I hope to see you back here in two weeks with a cocktail in hand and a story to tell. This has been The Art Dealer Show. <laughs>